0: All right, uh, well, we're going to jump into the word this morning in the book of Psalms, chapter 139, um, and uh, I'm really excited to uh, preach out of this passage today. This is, this is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. It's, it's really incredible. It speaks to how amazing our God is and our Savior is, um, and one of the things that I want us to know uh, that... This psalm is not a theological textbook. It wasn't written that way. It's a worship song. In fact, the, these psalms would, a lot of them say at the beginning, if you're reading the little subheading, it would say, to the choir master, a psalm of David, or something like that. And they would be something that would be recited or chanted or sung. I'm not sure exactly how I wasn't there. Uh, it was a few years before I was born. But they would be. Um, they would be done corporately, said corporately. So it's poetry. It's supposed to be um, something that's uh, not just uh, kind of bullet points. And in fact, if you look in most of your Bibles, the way that it's formatted, they're, they're, they're formatted differently. They're in like verses and stanzas. That's because it was written that way as a poetic book. So it's not a theological textbook, but What's incredible about this particular chapter is it, it really lays out beautifully some incredible characteristics about who God is. It teaches us and very succinctly tells us three important truths about who God is. And so through this entire chapter, um, we might um, learn maybe the most important truth about who God is, and that's his relational nature. It's the fact that he wants to have relationship with us. Now that is an incredible reality, that we're going to learn about God's power and his, his, uh, his, his incredible knowledge, but at the same time that he loves us, that he wants to know us. So turn to Psalm 139, follow along with us this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the seat pockets in front of you. It will also be on the screen behind me as well. We're going to start reading in... Uh, Verse 1, and uh, we're going to look at these three different sections this morning. We're going to go through verse 18 uh, today, and each section tells us something different about who God is. And this first one is that he's omniscient. Now, if you're not familiar with that word, um, a simple way to explain that would would be to say that God is all-knowing, that he is all-knowledge and all-understanding, and you'll see what I mean as we read through this passage. Verse 1 says, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now, it's incredible what this psalm does. And and you'll see this in each section that we go through is... Oftentimes when we talk about these characteristics about who God is, we look at a big picture. Like if we want to talk about the greatness of God, we think about his creation. The way that he formed the mountains and the rivers and the valleys and and the oceans and all these incredible massive things. And David says, no, no, if you want to really understand the greatness of God, look inside. Look at the small details. Look at the fact that he knows Everything about our lives, even the words that we've yet to speak, he knows them. How incredible is that? Wow, it's such a beautiful picture of who God is. Uh, In his 1982 book, Critical Path, futurist inventor R. Buckminster Fuller estimated that if we took all the knowledge that mankind has accumulated and transmitted by the year 1 CE, okay, so the, the year 1, right, as equal to one unit of information, it probably took about 1,500 years or about the 16th century for that amount of knowledge to double, okay? So if that first value was, was the year 1, about 1,500 years later the cumulative knowledge of mankind. Don't ask me how they calculate this. These are smart people. I don't know. I'm just going with what he has to say here. But it took about 1,500 years for that amount of knowledge to double. And then the next doubling from two to four knowledge units took only about 250 years until about 1750 CE. Now by 1900, 150 years later, knowledge had doubled again to eight units, and the speed at which it was doubling was getting faster and faster. In 1982, it's thought to have been that the doubling speed is between one and two years. And uh, now when he delivered his, his lecture back in 1982, there was no World Wide Web. There were no computers. There were no satellite there were no mobile phones, like no, no internet. I mean, like this is incredible how much things have changed over the last few years. And so by March 2010, the World Wide Web has 20 billion pages. And then uh, it's estimated, IBM did some calculations based on kind of the, the rate of growth of this cumulative knowledge of the world um, that by 2014, um, 50 years after Bolding's original lecture, that recorded knowledge would double every 11 hours. Now, he was wrong. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> experts, he was way off, by the way. Okay, experts are saying now, like in, in the last couple of years, that knowledge is only doubling at a rate of every 12 hours instead of 11 hours. Isn't that incredible? Now, think about, like every 12 hours, the cumulative knowledge of the world doubles, and we still know very little next to nothing compared with our creator. Our understanding is so limited. There are so many things in this world that we have absolutely no clue on. And so we can continue doubling and doubling at a faster and faster rate. We can get smarter and smarter and know more and more. And yet we'll never fully even come close to the understanding of our creator. And the way that he formed us and the way that he made us. He knows all information, he knows the future, he even knows our thoughts. Some of my favorite stories about Jesus are the times where he walked into a room and people are thinking something in their head and he talks to them as if they had said it out loud. I love it when he does that, man, that would just mess with people. I would love to be able to do that. Like somebody's having a private thought and you answer their question that they had in their head. They're like, did I say that out loud? (laughs) Uh, Jesus had that incredible knowledge because he's one with the Father. Now here's the part that I want us to really get at. God knows you. Not just King David because he was a famous person and he was important, but God knows you your thoughts he knows what's going on inside your head he knows your secrets he knows the things that you've hidden from everyone else now maybe that seems scary to you but i've come to the point in my life where that is a huge relief it just takes the pressure off of having to try to put up this facade of being this wonderful person because listen God knows me. He knows my flaws. He knows my failures. He knows all the things that I do that are wrong, the things that I think that are wrong, and he loves me in spite of it all. There's a, there's a uh, song that you probably heard on the radio if you listen to Christian radio, but it's um, uh, Tornwell sings a song about being fully known and loved by God. That is freedom. Freedom right? That's freedom. That means that I don't carry the weight of trying to put off this idea that I'm a good person. I'm not. I'm not a good person. It's only through his grace and his righteousness that I've been made right before the Father. And that's so freeing, and that's so relieving, that's so good. It maybe is intimidating to think of the fact that God knows everything that you've done, every thought that you've had, Be confident in the truth that he loves you. God is all-knowing, but he's also omnipresent. That one's easier to understand. It means ever-present, right? Verse 7 says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light to you. So not only is God great and powerful and knows everything, but he's present with his people He's with you no matter where you go. Sometimes you think about coming to maybe a a building like this, a church building, and you think, yeah, I'm going to go enjoy the presence of God. As if God were contained by by a building, right? In fact, even Solomon, after he uh, dedicated the temple, one of the things that he acknowledged in his dedication of this elaborate temple that they built so that like, they could enter into the presence of God, he said there's no building that could contain the presence of God. Right? Even that building, even that special place, no building can contain God. No geographical location is particularly holy. Now, we as the Assemblies of God, um, we have our... Headquarters, our national office uh, and our national staff are in Springfield, Missouri, and so we joke that that's the, the mecca of the assemblies of God. <laughs> little disappointing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's Springfield, Missouri. Listen, there is no place on Earth that is particularly holy, even Israel. right? We think about Israel, and I got to visit Israel a few years ago. About five years ago, I was there. It was incredible. I think everybody should go, um, but just for the purpose of like, seeing the location of, of all these things that happened, it, it brings the Bible to life. But can I tell you something? My prayer life didn't magically transform because I was in Israel. In fact, some people even make the joke that, hey, when you pray in Israel, it's, a, it's like a local call. No, that's that's ridiculous. All right. Listen, there are no barriers between our communication with God based on where your geographical location is. In fact, Scripture tells us where he resides. It says that we, our bodies, are temples of the Holy Spirit. So you don't even have to go to church to have connection and communication with God. You have instant access to him no matter where you are because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's good news, right? His presence is with us no matter where we go. The psalmist talks about a number of different things. He says, if I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my my, uh, bed in Sheol, what that means, Sheol means literally translated as death, So the idea that even when I die, you are there. He's with us. He's present with us in this life and he's present with us in the next life. There's nothing that we can do to escape his presence. He's with us. He sees us even when we're hiding, even when we're scared, even when we're frustrated, even when we're angry with God. He's present with us. Last thing that I want us to to see from this this passage is that God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And again, when we think of all-powerful, we think of like the big acts that God did. Like you think of like Moses and the people of Israel crossing the Red Sea, God separating that sea. Like that's a demonstration of God's power. Right? You think of... um, the Israelites crossing the Jordan River. You think of people being raised from the dead. You think of those momentous, miraculous signs that God performs. You think of him blinding an army. You think of all these moments. David says, no, no, no. You want to know how powerful God is. Here's what you look at. Verse 13 It says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them? If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. This is a reminder, not of how big God's work is, but how small, how detailed, from the greatest demonstration of his power to the intricate detail of what he's designed. David is saying that even the process of human development is the handiwork of God. Uh, James Merritt wrote... uh, this in his book, The Mystery of Creation. He said, a single thread of DNA from one human cell contains information equivalent to a library of 1,000 volumes or 600,000 printed pages with 500 words on every page. At conception, one embryo, has the equivalent of 50 times the amount of information contained in the entire Encyclopedia Britannica. All right, I I mean, think about this. This is before scientists understood anything about DNA and the way that human cell structure worked. But yet God gave David this picture of him knitting strands together in his mother's womb. That kind of sounds a lot like DNA. Maybe he had an understanding of how incredible our God is. What a picture. What an incredible truth. You know, your life and the intimate details of your life, everything from your body, from the way that you look down to your personality, those were decided by God. Now, I know a lot of people that I've met in my life, and I don't know that I've ever met someone who thinks that their body is perfect. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, even the fittest people, they're like, oh, Man, I could, I could lose 0.5% body fat or something like that. Or, like, oh, I wish my, my triceps were a little bit bigger. Or, I wish, I wish my mild, you know, I'm kind of bulky. I wish my mild time was a little fat. Like, eat, you can nitpick anything. And we as humans are incredibly good at this, at tearing ourselves apart. But you know what God says about the way that you were formed? He says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You're wonderful. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need to take care of what God has given us. And I, I think um, you know, there's, there's a lot of truth in that too, that, that we honor the Lord by, by taking care of what he's given to us and, and by seeking to be healthy. But let's be appreciative of the way that God designed us. He didn't just randomly like, assign you with a face. He intimately and, and expertly designed you and formed you and made you into what he wanted you to be. You were woven together by God, even down to a single strand of DNA. He planned who you would be. That's incredible. And that's a picture of how powerful and how incredible God is. You know, uh, we look at this and, and we think of of uh, something that's that's going on in our nation right now, and every all the talk about. Um, Roe v. Wade being overturned and um, the significance of what that means uh, for us as a country. And um, this passage is, is incredibly clear, right? That, that God forms us from the moment of conception that our DNA, our cell structure, who we are, that he knits us together with a plan and a purpose, and there are 60 million lives that have been lost because of abortion in our country. That's wrong. That's sinful. And we as Christians, we need to speak the truth about this. We need to be honest about this. Now, I frankly, you've, you've probably heard me say this before. I don't care what your politics are. I don't care what party you support. I, Uh, That is irrelevant to me, but when it comes down to this particular topic, there's only one godly side. There's only one right side. This is life and death, and we as Christians need to choose based on the word of God rather than our political identification. We need to get past some of this garbage and and realize that this is the truth of God's word. We need to stand for those children could potentially lose their lives. God has formed you. He made you. He planned you, He designed you. Yeah, you know, a group of college students were sitting in um, their professor's class, and uh, he gave them a, a really complex situation. He talked about a uh, mother and father that um, the mom had some uh, genetic defects. The father had uh, tuberculosis. Um, they were in poverty, and uh, they, it was just a bad situation. They became pregnant with a the baby. They had already lost several children already. And so the debate was in the class whether or not the baby should be aborted. And so they had this long, intense conversation, and they ended up at the end of the class, the majority of the class said, yeah, they voted that, that baby should be aborted. Professor said, okay, that's your decision. I just want you to understand something. You just killed Ludwig von Beethoven. Now, think about that for a second. I, I mean, yeah, he had a lot of health problems, but he also gave us some of the most incredible music this world has ever known. Listen, our value isn't in what the world sees sometimes. It's the way that God has created us and designed us and made us to be. You know, at the end of this passage, and I'm going to just read these last couple of verses to you. Um, David goes on to kind of talk about, it's his plea to God. But at the end of acknowledging everything about who God is and who he, who he his greatness, his, his ever presence, his, his power, all of these things, And at the end of that, at the conclusion of that incredible picture, this is what his prayer was. Verse 23, it says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a bold prayer. Right? Acknowledging who God is, acknowledging his greatness, acknowledging his power. Saying, okay, God, now show me what you see. Search deep inside my heart. Reveal to me the truth. What needs to change inside me? It's that idea of humbling ourselves before the Lord, of walking in repentance, Saying, Lord, show me how I can be more like you. What an incredible picture of humility, of Christ likeness. You know, I, I want us to make that our prayer this morning that God would speak to our hearts, that He would show us the areas of our life that need to change. There's things that aren't right in us that the conviction of the Holy Spirit would speak to us in that way. So would you just bow your heads in this place? I'm just going to give us a moment to sit and pray and just listen to the Holy Spirit's voice. we come before you this morning with our hearts humbled before you. Say, Lord, search our hearts. God, we know that that you know us. You know the thoughts that we have even before we have them. So, Lord, we pray that, that right now through your Holy Spirit you would reveal to us the areas of our heart that need to change. The places that we've allowed sin to creep in hinder us from experiencing the life that you have for us. (coughs) Lord, speak to us today. Humble us with your truth and remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness. We honor you today. We love you, Jesus. In your name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. We love you. We'll see you next week.